Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Deep Roots Forward Thinking, the podcast series by the Young Lockwood Sour team at UBS in Houston. My name is Liz DeMontron. I am your host today. As always, I'm very glad to be here. And today, I'm so excited to be introducing my my co-host, who's my teammate. She's one of the senior partners on the team and podcast newbie, Liz Lockwood. Hi, Liz. Hi, Liz. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Again, super excited to have you in the studio for the first time. And for many of our listeners, I mean, they already know this, but, you know, Liz, you've been in the industry for 40 years? 38 years. 38 years. So we're rounding up. And so, you know, you're a veteran in the industry. You've seen lots of different types of markets. So we're really happy to have you here to be opining. And over those 40 years, you've worked alongside some brilliant, brilliant people at UBS. And one of them is one of the most preeminent thought leaders, I think, at the firm, who's our guest today. So very excited to be introducing Mike Ryan, who's Divisional Vice Chairman at UBS and former Chief Investment Officer Americas for UBS. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Liz. It's great to be with you. Great. Yeah, I feel like this is a meeting of the minds. Like, I just want to be a fly on the wall and let you two talk, which is basically what I'm going to do. But, you know, to set the scene for our listeners, it's mid-April 2023. It's a confusing time, I think, for investors and for clients. Inflation has been a little bit stickier than we thought it was going to be. We had a banking crisis in March just a month ago. Earnings season, we're at the onset of. So there's lots going on. And then with all that, the market is up quite a bit for the year. So I know we're excited to hear from both of y'all on your thoughts on what's going on in the world and what's going on in markets. But before we jump into our conversation, Mike, do you want to give us a little bit of background and more about your career at UBS? Sure. First of all, one of the things I'll point out is is Liz Lockwood is not only a a colleague, but a dear friend. But I still call her a rookie because she's only been 38 years. I've actually been 39. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, Mike. So she, she hasn't worked out of her, her rookie years yet. My career, I've spent my entire career here at UBS, and I've always been in a research strategy or investment strategy role. And Liz, as you mentioned, I was the chief investment officer for over two and a half decades. And, and from that perch, I, I really got an opportunity to see two things. First of all, to see how the investment environment evolved, but also to see how investing itself evolved. It, it wasn't just about the environment in terms of macro drivers or policy initiatives, but also the the tools that investors had available to them and the mindset in terms of how people began to evolve their thinking about the opportunities and risks associated with, with investing. So it's really been an extraordinary period for me and one that I, I've really enjoyed the journey. I'm looking forward to the journey going forward from here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Well, to begin our conversation, Mike, you had said that one of the themes that you're kind of tying a bow on in terms of what's going on in the world is unsettled business, which we think is so interesting. So would love to hear from you why those words stand out to you right now. Let me point out that every business cycle, every policy cycle, every market cycle is unique. It's hard sometimes we like to go back and draw these simple historical comparisons. And they're really hard to do because every environment's a bit different. But I would argue that this one is uniquely unique. And what I mean by that is we're certainly seeing challenges on growth, inflation, monetary policy, geopolitics. Rarely have we seen so many dynamics all at work at once. And as you mentioned, Liz, still unsettled. You know, Normally what happens is you have an arc of some issue, whether it's a, a business cycle or a policy-related cycle, and they run the arc where the you know, beginning, intermediate, and end. 
And, and still, some of these issues we talked about are, are still uncertain. And I'll give you an example on the economy. There's an active debate now about you know, whether or not we're in a recession or whether we get a recession. And I got to be honest with you, the, the data is not definitive one way or the other. Uh, I think the data has weakened. It's showing more and more signs of softening. But it's, it's not showing the, the sort of confirmational data that we normally get that would indicate that we're at a inflection point either way on the economy. Likewise with inflation, I think you know the good news is you saw today with the um, inflation reports is the good news is that we are seeing now the inflation curve is bending. But we still know we have stickiness and we know that inflation is still a challenge globally. Um, so that's yet unresolved. Certainly the Fed policy, which you know we have a we had a meeting in March, we have another meeting coming up in May. There's still un- lack of clarity in terms of when the Fed will complete the tightening cycle or even what it is that they will look for in terms of the signpost to make us aware that that cycle is completed. And then lastly, Liz, I think this geopolitical environment is one that I think is it's unsettled. I, I would argue that this is not only the most challenging and unsettled geopolitical environment since the end of the Cold War, but I might even argue it's the most unsettled since the end of the Second World War. Not because it's necessarily more dangerous, but because it's more complex. You have more players on the field. There is so many competing agendas. So when I talk about this being uniquely unique with this unsettled business, it's because we have so many variables that are in play right now. Yeah, those are some really, really good points, Mike. And it's almost like every point you just touched on are the top of mind for most of our private clients and their families. And as you know, and I know, recessions don't last forever, but this is such a unique time because we're not sure if we're in one or not based on earnings, which, you know, I guess the multiples, what, 18 forward PE. I mean, historically, I went back and looked, and when you have recessions, the multiples usually much, much lower. Sentiment does not seem that negative to me. It seems confused. And as you just said, it's a uniquely unique time. So, you know, we continue to encourage clients and their families to stay the course, avoid rash decisions. Yes, there's a lot of things that are uncomfortable right now. If some of them are giving you anxiety, take deep breaths and turn off the news because making any sort of allocation shifts based on fear in the long run normally are not the best the best decisions. Something else that a lot of our clients are talking about is two-thirds of the chief economists around the world predict this global recession. And we've got these great charts from asset management that show two-thirds of the economists that predict global recessions and interest rate moves are wrong. So once again, it's just all about that message, invest through it. And as you said, there are no real indications of whether we're in a recession or not or going into a recession or not. And um, always remember that diversification is going to be your best friend no matter what. Let me follow up on that because I think you made so many critical points there that I think I completely agree with. First of all, this notion about when is the right time to invest. As you and I, look, we've been doing this long enough to know that it's not about timing the market, it's time in the market, and it's about working through these periods of volatility. What I also explain to people is, is that I've never in my career seen a what I would consider to be a completely benign investment environment where there were no risks and we had complete clarity as to the outcome. And one of the kind of exercises I challenge people on is I, I ask them to go back and pick a day 
in the past, any day, arbitrarily, just throw a dart against a dartboard, and then go back and look at the headlines on that day. And what you typically see is that there's so many things that are challenging, concerning, risks, fraught with peril. And if you get caught up, as you point out rightly, Liz, if you get caught up in just the news flow, the headlines, the talking you know, heads on, on different you know, media channels, you can be paralyzed into inaction. And I think that's an enormous mistake because I'd say through every investment environment, there are opportunities created. It simply means that you have to be prudent about it. Maybe the other thing I mentioned, which I, I'll go back to your comment on recession too, is you know, you're, you're absolutely right there. Economists, it's not hard science, economics. It's a soft science. And by the way, you know, there, so there are no firm rules of physics that apply to economics. And it is a behavioral science, which means then that economic outcomes are driven by changes in personal behavior. And one of the things I think you really hit the nail on the head there was this notion about confusion in terms of the uh, investing public and also in terms of um, you know business owners. Like they don't have the kind of clarity and transparency. So to me, I think this notion that we know with certainty we're going to fall into recession or not. The old saw that um, you know economists have have correctly predicted you know, 12 of the last four recessions, right? I think that's, it allows us to be humble and act with humility in terms of what we know and what we don't know. But it doesn't mean we ignore the potential outcomes. We have to prepare for it. Exactly. And you bring up a good point talking about when sentiment is negative and people are, as you just said, paralyzed. That nine times out of 10 is a great time to consider it opportunity to perhaps add to your equity allocation. I mean, there's always positives that can come out of these, these rough and challenging times. And, you know, you and I have both been through so many changes in this industry over the last, you know, almost four decades. And a lot has really changed, but yet a lot remains the same. And so, Making sure you've got holistic advice and goals-based advice and a trusted advisor that has really worked on thoughtful planning tailored to your specific goals and objectives. We spend so much time working on that way before we recommend investment solutions. And that is the solid pillar of what we believe and what our process is. So if you've got that done, that's the one thing you can control is having that plan. You know, we we can't control what the markets are doing, what geopolitics are doing, what what's going on in China, et cetera. And the trends and the products and the solutions and the technology have all evolved and they'll continue to evolve. But what we think the one solid foundation that will not change is ensuring that you do have a plan in place based on your time horizon, your risk tolerance, your cash flow needs, and and just always remembering that that planning is your foundation. And so it's not that we're not a forward-thinking team or a forward-thinking term firm, because we certainly are, but having those key diversification and allocation you know, models in place will help smooth your returns over time, dampen your volatility, And literally, as you just said, you can look back at any day and there are terrible, scary, terrifying headlines. But yet the next few days, we could see some of the best days in the market ever. So 
Some things have changed, but some things I think will always stay the same. Well, you made so many really great points. I want to pick up on a couple. One thing I think is so important about investing is it's it's about maintaining discipline. Because I think what happens is, especially during periods of stress, market stress, personal stress, economic stress, we tend to discipline breaks down. And by the way, when we're faced with a threat, this is something that's hard-coded into our DNA as a species, is that when we perceive a threat, we feel compelled to act. And therefore, when you when something's happening, you know, when you're seeing a fallout in markets or you're seeing a concern about recession or a concern about geopolitical issues, you sometimes natural instinct is just to react to it, right? But actually we have to push back against that hard coding of our DNA because sometimes in fact, many times, the best thing is, is not to overreact to it because what happens is when that discipline breaks down is when we see the mistakes being made, when people sell at the wrong time, when they, they lose confidence. So you, I'll go back to what you said about the plan. The only way, the only way that I've seen in my four decades doing this to maintain that discipline is to have a plan ahead of time. You need to make sure that you understand the purpose of your asset allocation, as you point out, Liz. You know, in terms of how we diversify, you need to understand how this matches with your risk profile so that you can kind of weather through those periods of volatility. Look, we're going to always have, and where I've seen the biggest, as I said before, the biggest mistakes made is when people feel compelled to respond to those periods of volatility or those periods of uncertainty. And then they wind up having to pivot back. When do I get back into the market? And this is when you see people failing to participate in the recovery because they were so focused on the volatile moment. Exactly. And there's not a bell that goes off and says, okay, Mr. Client, it's time to get back in. You know, so yeah. Yeah. The, 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 life, the lifeguard never blows his whistle. That's, that's exactly right. So you can be your own worst enemy in times like that. Yeah. I think what's interesting, Mike, what you and Liz both just said is focusing on the things that we can control and not the things that we can't. And, and you also mentioned earlier, you know, just the uncertain environment that we're in, particularly around the Fed policy. And this morning, I thought it was interesting, Warren Buffett was on some business news and was interviewed and was asked about, you know, his thoughts on the Fed. And he responded with, Jay Powell is one of my heroes, which I feel like I haven't really heard that effusive um, commentary about Chairman Powell and, and, and the Fed. So anyways, I'm curious to hear, you know, your thoughts on the Federal Reserve, the job that you think they've done over the past few years and what things look like ahead. And yeah, Mike, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one more caveat to that for you to speak to. I cannot remember any time in history since I've been in this business that the Fed action and commentary has kept the markets and the banking industry and the clients on edge like today's environment. And I don't know if it's because the news is coming faster. I don't know if it's because the delivery of the message has been inconsistent. You know, just kind of want to get your thoughts on everything Liz just brought up and then how you feel about this being on edge and this commentary that is either positive or negative out of the Fed. Yeah, wow, but that's a lot there. And it, but there's so much we can talk about with the Fed. Well, let me start with what you talked about here in terms of, is it sort of just the, the fact that we're not only inundated, we're assaulted with information today, where just everything is just parsed every statement and, and therefore it's overwhelming. So I do think there's this tendency for news cycles to 
raise awareness of Fed policy and perhaps even almost to an unhealthy level. I think the other dimension here that that is different, though, fundamentally and structurally, is that the Fed communicates more openly now. You remember there was a time when you had to sort of divine and read through the tea leaves what the Fed was thinking about or what they intended to do. And that's changed now. They're more communicative. And that means also their indecision will sort of be read through as well. You know, I think there was almost a sense at one point that was, you know, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. And, you know, we didn't know what happened, but we assumed that the the, the wizard was intelligent and benign. Well, the, the curtain's been pulled back. We realize it's human beings and they're making decisions with uncertainty. And when you're making decisions that are so critical with uncertainty, that's where you see these periods where you know, markets openly question Fed policy. I also talked about this notion of transparency. There's a, a really, really funny quote that came back from the Greenspan era. And he was once testifying before Congress. And he made a comment and the congressman said to him, you know, Mr. Chairman, if I understand you clearly, and then he, he was going to go on and, and, and Greenspan cut him off. And he said, excuse me, Senator, he goes, if I turned out to be particularly clear, you probably misunderstood <laughs> I what I said. It. <laughs> right? <laughs> So there was this, this sense, this sense of mystery and intrigue around the Fed. So I think part of the reason we're seeing such an obsession with the Fed now is they're communicating more directly. They're communicating in real time. There's more transparency. But also, as you mentioned, Liz, there's more this this news flow. Going back to how I grade out the Fed, if I was asked to give the Fed a grade, I would say the grade I would give them is an incomplete. And the reason I say that is because, and by the way, an incomplete. It's tough because the Fed job is a really hard job. And I think Jay Powell has done as good as a job as almost anyone would have been in the same circumstances. But here's, here's the issue I have right now is that um, the Fed is, is, is still trying to figure out the correct policy response. Now, if you think about it, almost since uh, I'll even go back to 9-11 and then certainly the financial crisis and the COVID crisis. There was a there was a response function by central bankers is that when there was a threat, when there perceived threat, you provided liquidity, you provided support, and allowed the real economy and financial markets to to heal, right? And I think that's prudent in certain circumstances, like when you have certain demand shocks, when you have a loss of confidence, you need central banks to to step in. The problem is they got so used to stepping in, and we got so used to them stepping in that what was intended to be extraordinary measures during a period of stress almost became normalized policy response. And therefore, we got lulled into the sense of, okay, well, something's going to happen. Don't worry, the Fed's going to come to our rescue. And, and therefore, I think there was an over-reliance on policy. I also think the policy response itself at times was either inappropriate or perhaps overdone. And I'll give an example. I think in the financial crisis, I think when the Fed you know, ease policy and put in these special measures, including the quantitative easing. I think it was appropriate because, you know, we had this incredible demand shock. We had this extraordinary balance sheet deleveraging. We had a, a really a crisis that could have brought the financial system down. And therefore, I think the policy response was appropriate. Now, was the duration too long? Probably. But again, it, we only know that with hindsight. You know, at the time, I will tell you, you and I lived through this, Liz, it, it felt pretty. It, it felt pretty, pretty awful, and I think, the, therefore, what the Fed did was appropriate. I think in COVID, I'm not sure that what the Fed did was entirely appropriate. I think initially, trying to provide some confidence to markets and to support was was clearly the the right thing, the immediate impulse. 
But I think what they they didn't realize is, of course, is that this wasn't really a demand shock. This is a supply shock. And, and therefore, by sort of breaking out the global financial crisis playbook, um, you were potentially setting up other risks. You know, there's an old, another old saw, you know, to a man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And I think they, they had almost the exact same playbook, yet the foundations and the genesis of the two crisis, the financial crisis, the COVID crisis, were fundamentally different. And therefore, that's why I give the Fed an incomplete here. It meant that they kind of were slow to recognize that this was different, and their policy response was slow to respond. So to me, I think what the Fed is having to do now is having to play catch up. They're having to, they recognize that they were perhaps too sanguine about inflation early on. So now they've had to play catch up here. So that's why I give them an incomplete is because I think we we still need to see how the Fed conducts themselves in terms of winding down this tightening cycle, running the course of quantitative tightening before I can give them a grade. Look, and I'll go back to, maybe I'll just end on this comment with the Fed. I think Jay Powell was in a really tough spot because, you know, you had had, you know, in the post-financial crisis world, you know, you had these inflation scares and then they did prove to be transitory. And each time the Fed looked to tighten, you know, the markets came under pressure and the economy looked like it was falling back into recession. So it's not surprising that the Fed was at least early on dismissive that this was fundamentally different from an inflationary standpoint. So again, I give Jay Powell, his grades are are still mixed. But by the way, central banking is a hard job. I'll go back to what I opened with. You're trying to make really critical decisions with limited information. And that's a really, really hard thing to do. Right. Gosh, such great perspective and insight you just provided. And yeah, they're using data from the past to make their decisions. So yeah, it's, I think an incomplete is a perfect grade. He has another semester to make make up that incomplete. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like inflation, again, the T word, transitory, you know, a lot of the blame seems to be falling on the shoulders of the Fed. But I also know that we can't look at monetary policy in a vacuum. You know, during COVID, fiscal policy, I think, played a huge part in the money supply and augmenting that. You know, also now central banks around the world, global monetary policy. You know, there's different countries now on different trajectories in terms of their rate hiking or rate lowering cycles. So I don't know. How do you think about all that, Mike, when you take a step back? Yeah, well, first of all, I think you raised a really interesting point about the fiscal policy response. So when I was talking about the COVID crisis and I talked about the global financial crisis, you know, there was there was two elements to it. There was monetary and there was fiscal, right? And the same was true as well under COVID. There was a monetary and fiscal response. And as much as I said that the monetary response was perhaps overdone, I would argue that the same is true of the fiscal response, where we, by the way, again, initially, you know, we faced a, a situation where we've never seen this before, certainly not in our lifetime. You know, pandemic, we haven't seen one in 100 years. And when you think about the Spanish flu, the world was very, very different then. The integration of global economy, the functioning of financial markets, and therefore, there was so much uncertainty. So I do understand this necessity for the government to play a larger role. And that's why you saw a lot of stimulus measures, expanded unemployment benefits. Remember that this was really unique, not just in terms of the nature of the virus, but also the fact that we we 
collectively, the royally, we made a decision to shut down the global economy. We made a public health choice. We decided we're going to try and contain this virus. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to impose social distancing restrictions, restrict mobility. We were going to place, you know, businesses on lockdown. Now, obviously, that that's an extraordinary thing to do. And therefore, you need to have something that tempers that. And that's where government played a role. So again, I'm not critical of the fact that just as I wasn't with the Fed, that there was this fiscal response. The problem is once you've primed the pumps on fiscal policy, they tend to keep going. There's a tendency if if you're an elected official, if spending money was good, then spending more money is better. All right. And I think you, you tend to see then it was uh, that's why we had such a, a massive amount of pent up demand wasn't just because people didn't have the ability to spend things during COVID lockdown is because their wealth rose sharply because of this incredible transfer of wealth from the public sector to the private sector. Now, there's over $2 trillion in wealth creation, $2.5 trillion in consumer balance sheets over COVID. Well, that's a lot of money to get spent. And I think that's added to the inflationary pressures. I also go back to what you said about while there may have initially been a linking or a sinking of monetary and fiscal policy globally in the immediate aftermath of COVID, the world is operating at very different speeds now, and you're seeing differing policy responses appropriately. And therefore, as you mentioned, we have to factor these things in. It's not sort of one thing that's going to drive ultimately the outcome, and it's not only the Fed we can focus on. For example, we're seeing now central banks around the world are diverging in terms of the policy approach they're taking. So there's no question that's not centered exclusively or even necessarily primarily around what the Fed does in terms of the global implications. Once again, great perspective and insight from my good friend and brilliant Mike Ryan. So I'm going to pivot to something that clients ask us about all the time, and that is you and I've lived through, obviously, lots of interesting times. And many clients are asking, the Silicon Valley bank failure, is this and how is this different from the crisis in 2008? And so my response has been, you know, in 2008, over-levered balance sheets, all sorts of illiquidity on these balance sheets. This is when financials were failing, not falling. It was, it was very, very different. And what we've heard is that this SVB failure is being referred to as the first Twitter failure. And it's the second largest bank failure behind Washington Mutual. So top of mind for clients, how would any additional regulation help and or prevent in this digital world we live in how would this help with regard to maintaining a bank solvency and avoiding another run on the bank? Yeah, I agree with you. By the way, I think you and Liz are absolutely capable of really direct, clear, short questions. As you can tell, I'm perfectly incapable of, of quick, short answers. <laughs> and I promise this will be no different. Let me start with a, a couple of things that, that you mentioned from the outset. One is, I think there's a tendency whenever there's a bank issue, we lump them all into crises. Like we, we overuse the word crisis. I think we are going through a bank event, right? A, a, an event within the financial system. I'm certainly not dismissive of it. And could this 
morph into or could this deteriorate to a banking crisis? It certainly could. I'm, I'm certainly not sanguine about that. But I do think to your point, Liz, the catalyst and the foundation of this are fundamentally different than it was in 2008, 2009. I'll touch upon some of the things that you talked about and then maybe extend it a bit. So look, what we had then, if you think about the circumstances, we had a consumer that was living far beyond their means. You basically had house appreciation was rising sharply. You had people treating their homes like ATMs and tapping into all sorts of equity, right? So what we basically had was an extraordinary housing bubble. Now, what this led to was this expansion in credit and ultimately a credit crunch and a credit crisis. And it happened at a time that was unique in two ways. One is we had a lot of financial engineering, which you related to, Liz, where we basically had a lot of product of certain kinds of you know creation of new products where people couldn't really effectively evaluate them or value them. And the quality was of question, right? And a lot of banks were holding these and a lot of financial institutions were holding this. Now, at the same time that they were holding them, they were as thinly capitalized as we've seen them. They were trying to be incredibly efficient in terms of putting money to work and therefore highly levered. So when you get a situation where you have an overextended consumer and an overlevered financial system, it doesn't take a lot to spark a financial crisis. And that's what we got. The bursting of the housing bubble was that moment that was an inflection point. And then it sort of grew and deepened from there. And as you rightly point out, this wasn't a this was not a, a failure of a financial institution. This was potentially potentially failure of the financial system. And you know, you and I lived in this Liz. It was it was a harrowing moment and you know it, it was a challenge. I also think that one of the things that probably didn't help was that since this was so unique, Congress and the Fed were slower to respond. Remember that the first TARP bill failed in Congress uh, and failed spectacularly, and the markets were were really coming under pressure. And then secondly, remember that the Fed didn't have the tools or the programs in place to be able to respond quickly. And all they could do was cut interest rates, right? And there was questions about even what they could purchase into the Fed's balance sheet. So I would say that the financial crisis was extraordinarily event and it was unique. I think this one's foundationally different because, first of all, you have a consumer, like consumer spending has certainly increased and the savings rate has fallen. But remember that I, I talked earlier about that surplus of of wealth transfer to the to the consumer sector. So we don't have an overburden put upon consumer. Actually, consumer balance sheets are in relatively good shape. Secondly, while we've seen home price appreciation, you know, we haven't seen that really frothy real estate markets nationally or globally. And by the way, it's not people aren't doing it at the same high leverage they were in the past, right? So I don't think we'll get a we will get fall in housing prices. We will get some, you know, what I'll call a re-rationalization of real estate prices. But we won't get this big housing bubble bursting. And then lastly, financial institutions have really created a much better cushion in terms of their capital base. You know, they're they're not undercapitalized now. They're not as highly levered, to your point. So I think the industry's in better shape. And then lastly, the quality of the collateral was not really what was in question. The, the, what happened is the duration of the of the collateral is what was in question. It was a classic asset liability mismatch. Now, by the way, I'm not dismissive of that because when you have financial institutions that were trying to 
increase or trying to maintain profitability in a zero rate environment, a lot of them got pulled into the same dynamic where you know your deposits were basically almost at zero. And therefore, you put that money to work in longer-term securities trying to earn the spread. And once the Fed started raising rates, what had been a money maker becomes a money loser. I think really what happened is a number of banks were were really slow to react to that. Now, again, I, I don't think this is a, a systemic risk. You mentioned this earlier, Liz. It's idiosyncratic. It's institution by institution. And here's the one thing I'm, I'm certain of. We will see more bank failures in this, in this cycle. We will. With we remember that when the Fed makes a move, there's a lag in terms of the impact on the economy and the financial sector. And so only months from now will we know the impact of a Fed tightening three months ago or six months ago, right? So we're seeing the, the delayed effect of what I call the collateral damage from a monetary policy cycle. So to me, I think you know there was no question we'll see more of it. Again, I don't view this as a as a structural systemic risk that's going to be a repeat of 2008 2009 and i also think you're right that there was a um i won't use the word sensationalized it's not fair it's the second biggest bank failure but i think what happened is this broke so quickly and immediately uh, our reference point is back down to 2008 2009 so i I think this is fundamentally different i don't see the same sort of risk maybe the last thing i'll mention here because i think it is important is unlike the 2008 financial crisis, the Fed had the tools now. They basically have the, the things that they need if it's required. Quantitative, you know, certainly quantitative easing. Uh, this this you know, guaranteeing of deposits. Remember, deposit insurance prior to the financial crisis was limited to 100000 in some cases even lower than that. So the, this ability to guarantee deposits is one way of sort of stemming a run on the banks. Look, runs on banks have been existed since banks have existed, right? And I don't think we've, we're going to solve all that. Uh, and nor do you want necessarily you know, governments guaranteeing all deposits, because then you're introducing a, a really high risk of moral hazard. But what I also believe now is that you know, the Fed stepped in aggressively to try and make sure that it built a firewall so it didn't spread to other banks. Right, right. Liz, there will be more fallout. I mean, as I said before, there will be some failures and there will be losses here. You know, you think about there are bondholders or stockholders that are being, you know, so this is not a completely benign outcome. There will be consequences, but I don't think it's the same set of consequences that we got in 2008, 2009. Right, right. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. And Mike, you know, you mentioned the zero bound rate environment we were in really after the financial crisis through COVID. And you're right, one of the consequences was obviously the asset liability mismatch at these banks. Another consequence was a fairly one-sided trade that lasted really after 2008, again, through COVID. And, and for us, what sticks out is just the mega cap tech trade. You know, coming out of COVID, there's going to be structural inflation. There's going to be relatively higher rates. As we talked about, there's going to be divergent policies around the world. You know, what asset classes excite you now and what opportunities do you see when you look at on the investing horizon? So first of all, is I think what we are faced with, and I think you properly categorize this, I think we're we're seeing regime change now. You know, we were in one regime and that was the regime was structurally low inflation accommodative monetary policy, and low interest rates. 
And that bred a certain type of investment strategy that could take advantage of that. And it's part of the reason why, you know, growth stocks did so well. You know, in low in slow growth, low inflation environments where interest rates are low, you know, that's almost a a, a perfect environment, a perfect ecosystem for for growth companies and and certainly technology companies. Now, by the way, it wasn't just the ecosystem, it was also that we were going through a period where you're seeing just tremendous innovation. So this wasn't just about you know the fact that rates were low or inflation was low. You know, there was extraordinary innovation that happened within the technology space and not just limited to technology. You know, it happened certainly in information services, it happened in in med tech, right? So there was just this extraordinary period of of creativity and, and innovation. But I do think going forward, by the way, I think innovation will continue. I think, in fact, I think when you have challenging environments, innovation is actually enhanced because you're forced to rethink the way you've done things. So I think this next cycle will will prompt a whole new set of innovations as, as people think about solving the world's problems. But I also agree with you that this will be a different regime. I, I completely agree with your assessment that we'll be in a structurally higher inflation and interest rate environment. Now, I want to be careful here because I think when everybody here hears higher inflation, higher interest rates, we immediately, you know, go back to the horrible late 60s, early, you know, I'm sorry, late 70s, early 80s, and say, okay, double-digit inflation, you know, multiples on stocks at, you know, historically low levels. I don't think that's what we're in for. I think that was a unique period. I think there were certain circumstances that were just really promoted that that high inflation, high interest rates. Um, I don't think we see a repeat of that. But as you said, we're going to see a few things will happen. One is, I think we'll see more friction in trade. Uh, I think we're we're already seeing this rethink of globalization, which has been an incredibly uh, deflationary, disinflationary environment, and also labor market conditions. You know, there's there's a change in labor market conditions and labor availability. So all those things tell me that we're going to see higher inflation. Now, I don't, I didn't say high inflation. I think inflation is coming down and it will continue to come down. But if the Fed pre-COVID uh, struggled to get inflation back above 2%, back to 2% rather, I think the post-COVID world is inflation will be sticky above 2% and the Fed will try to be pulling it back to its target. So in the pre-COVID world, chronically below 2%, I think what you'll see in the post-COVID world is sticky above 2%. And therefore, how we invest will change. I think right now we, we have a preference for value over growth. Look, at some point, we'll pivot off that because you know, you'll shift that you know, the Fed will move to the sidelines and you know, growth will come back in fashion. But at least for right now, you want to be in value-oriented areas. I also think when, when you ask me a broader question about what opportunities I see out there, there's something that as investors, we haven't had the opportunity to, to really think about in 10 to 12 years. Fixed income is now an investable asset class. I actually have yields. I have, I have rates. I have coupons I can clip. So how we want to think about fixed income now is, okay, not purely as a hedge in my portfolio against really horrible outcomes. It's now a diversifier that also provides me with a yield and a level of return. So engaging in fixed income, now by the way, I'm not saying you go out and you shift everything to fixed income now. I think rates are still pretty low. And I think over time, we will, we will maybe see higher rates again. But I do think now that there's some opportunities in fixed income. And lastly, this is going to sound a little bit like a reach here, but I do think 
there's opportunities outside the United States. Uh, I, I think what we've seen is over a period of time, there's been sort of this U.S.-dominated focus in investing. And if you were in dollars and if you were in the U.S. markets, you did great. If you weren't, you didn't do so great. I do think there's opportunities now exist outside the U.S. Again, I think there'll be regional problems with some of the geopolitical issues we talked about. But I think the, the, the playing field now lends itself better to more balanced returns across geographic regions. That's really helpful. Thank you, Mike. Especially, again, you're, you're watching so many things going on in the world. So hearing where you see opportunity, and, and again, it's very different than I think where we were even four or five years ago. And that all plays back into diversification and having a plan because value is going to be in favor and then growth is going to be in favor and value is going to be out of favor. The U.S. is going to be, you know, the top performing. And then, you know, overnight, everybody wants to be an international because all of a sudden it's up 10 or 15 percent year to date. So, again, it's being diversified across these different asset classes. It's taking advantage of ensuring that your plan does have that diversification in it to achieve your goals, because that's going to ultimately smooth your returns over time. And something else that as we talk about opportunities outside of the U.S. and as we talk about fixed income finally being an asset class and cash, you know, being an asset class for the first time, my gosh, since I can remember, you know, one thing that that we really think is important is staying focused on owning and believing in your portfolio via owning the transparency of the underlying securities. You know, you don't own the market. You own really good companies and really good businesses and really good credits. And going back to what Mike said regarding, you know, outside of the U.S., a lot of those companies are trading at much lower multiples than the U.S., but yet have higher growth rates and are paying higher dividends. So again, when the clients, when private clients hear international, you know, sometimes they're, they cringe a little bit like, oh, no, there's so much international going on. But when they actually look at the holdings, you know, Nestle's, Novartis, Medtronic's, whatever it is, you know, that promotes confidence. And I think, I think that that, you know, all plays into, you know, our whole thematic approach to don't react, nor let the headline news dictate your strategy. Liz, can I come back to something? I, boy, I mean, I, well, I completely agree with what you said. Mm-hmm. I'll come back to some of the point, though, and this issue of diversification. But I, I do think, you know, foundationally that you need to have a really well-balanced, diversified portfolio because ultimately that's what gets you through these periods of different market cycles and, and periods of volatility. But I also think we need to think a bit differently now about what is a diversified portfolio? Mm-hmm. When you and I started this business, Liz, it was stocks, bonds, and a little bit of cash, right? Mm-hmm. And alternative investments weren't really something. There was on the margin, there was some participation, but not really mainstream. I think diversification now has to be embraced more broadly. It includes not just domestic and international. It includes not just equity and fixed income, but it also includes things like private equity, private credit, if appropriate, hedge fund even direct ownership of property or even certain types of assets. So I think taking a broader view of diversification, again, I'm not saying that every person should own the same mix of assets. That's that's not what I'm saying at all. It needs to be it needs to be fit for purpose for the individual's risk profile 
and their tolerance levels. But I will say that for most portfolios, incorporating these what I call non-traditional asset classes is another way of both enhancing returns and dampening volatility. Exactly. We couldn't agree more. And we began incorporating and using alternatives in our allocation, gosh, I guess 20-something years ago. I mean, just being out there looking for investments that were not path-dependent on interest rates staying low forever and stocks going up forever. So you make a really good point. And yes, and you know that's another great thing about the solutions and the depth and the breadth of product that UBS has access to because so many of our clients have been the beneficiaries of that. Well, Mike, it's pretty its pretty obvious that Liz and I could talk to you for <laughs> a very long time. It's hard to believe that we are wrapping up where we're coming up on the hour. So as we start to, start to begin our conclusion, I'll ask you a philosophical question. You know, as the chief investment officer of the Americas at UBS, so much of your role was interacting with clients, explaining macroeconomic trends to clients, also connecting with clients. What's one of your biggest takeaways from that role and how you think about investing and also working with other people in their investments? Boy, that's a really good question. I don't know if anybody's ever really posed that to me before. Let me start with the, the recognition that Every individual is different, right? So there's going to be, there's certain commonalities in terms of the things that people fear and the things that people look at opportunities and they're excited about. But I think you have to understand, okay, that every personal circumstance is different, which by the way, is is why as important as the research is, as important as the investment allocation, decision-making, the planning, it is about the guidance that you get from an individual. And this is where our, our advisors play, I think, the most crucial role in terms of facilitating good outcomes for clients because they have the ability now to connect with the client individually, understand their preferences, understand the risk profile, and translate a strategy that works for them. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say, and having done this 40 years, there are many qualities that I think are helpful and useful and necessary. There's one that I think is absolutely essential. It's humility. Because I do think when, when, we, when hubris sets in and when we think we're smarter than the market, so we've cracked the code, that's when I see the mistakes being made. So to me, I think what I've tried always to maintain is, and by the way, I've had the ability to remain to have humility because I've been humbled plenty of times. There are times I thought I was right, and suddenly I realized I wasn't as right as I thought it was. Um, so the humility means a sense of willingness to change, to adapt, and to recognize, of course, if you're on a course, that's not the right course, you're able to pivot from it. And maybe the last thing I'll say here is avoid dogma. I've seen this, what I call these dogmatic investing approaches where someone is such a true believer and says, okay, I don't care what I hear, what you say, what evidence accumulates. This is the true system. This is the belief system I'm going to stick with. I prefer to take a pragmatic approach rather than a dogmatic approach. And I need to understand that in different cycles, conditions change. Circumstances are altered, valuations fluctuate. And if I'm just going to have this rote, dogmatic investing approach, I'm probably not going to be able to take advantage of the opportunities. And I'm certainly going to expose myself to the risks. Wow. Thank you again. I mean, it's an incredible role to be in and gives you an incredible vantage. So we appreciate hearing your your insights. Well, Liz, I'll, I'll turn it to you. Do you have any parting words for our listeners as we conclude? Gosh, well, one thing that 
we always share with our clients and prospects is that something that we really believe differentiates our team is that not only have we been together our entire career, but we've been at the same firm our entire career and feel like UBS, although things aren't perfect because nothing is, I do think we have the most incredible people and feel very blessed to have Mike Ryan, who, you know, is a face of UBS as not only an incredible long-term partner, but as a really good friend and a brilliant friend (laughs) for that matter with, you know, very, very calming words of wisdom and viewpoints and discernment. And we can't thank you enough, Mike, for joining us today and taking the time to really share your viewpoints on so many of these, what we call unresolved issues. Mm -hmm. I was about to say, I mean, the title of the episode is Unsettled Business. I feel a little bit more settled. I do too. Talking to you and Mike. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much for, for both of you having me. I really enjoyed it. I, you know, there's actually, I, I may throw one little party word on my side is I, I actually didn't mention this, but I should have mentioned it when you asked me about what's the most important issues and as a CIO, integrity. And this is where I'll, I'll circle back to Liz Lockwood. I worked with Liz for four decades. And when I think of integrity, you know, she kind of comes up, she's like the poster child for integrity. It's not just about what you do, it's how you do it. Because at the end of the day, you have to have confidence, faith, and trust in the people that are going to be responsible for being the stewards of your wealth. And therefore, having integrity is is absolute table stakes in what we do. Without that quality, I don't care how smart you are, I don't care how well-connected or well-informed you are, the rest becomes meaningless. And I think those of you on this call, you have the opportunity to work with Liz and the team. You're with some of the, not only the smartest people, but I think some of the most high-integrity people I know in this business. Thank you, Mike. That means wow. the world. What a note. What a note to end on, but it's so true. So I really, I thank you for, for voicing that, Mike, because I completely agree. Well, thank you both for joining me today for this conversation. Thank you to our listeners for listening. And again, I've been Liz DeMontron, your host of this episode of Deep Roots Forward Thinking, signing off. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.